Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would like to invite you to turn back to Proverbs chapter 19. And uh, last week, we, uh, uh, as we've been in chapter 19, we have been only getting through about one verse a week. Uh, we'll get through a few more today. But um, boy, there's been some great practical material here uh, in these individual verses. And last week, you remember, we examined uh, out, of cha- out of chapter 19, verse 3, uh, some really good uh, concepts. And uh, we talked about, first of all, the foolishness of man and how it will pervert our way in our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I showed you how that, you know, many times we make Christianity so complicated. I think we do that because uh, we like to live in the gray area that we like to create, but with God there really is no gray area. Jesus said, either with me or against me. Either love me or you hate me. We like to find, uh, uh, we like to find that uh, twilight zone of Christianity, which really doesn't exist. And uh, we, we have a tendency, all of us, to try to make Christianity uh, really uh, more, more than it is. You know, <clears throat> whether you understand it or not, sitting here this morning, you're either right with God or you're not right with God. You're not kind of right with God. You know, somebody said one time, I said, how you doing? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in fellowship and, and kind of out of fellowship. No, 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 no. You're either in fellowship with him today and everything is right or you're not. Amen. But see, we like that, don't we? It works for us. And I showed you how that real Christianity is simply going our way or going God's way. It's simply doing what I want to do the way I want to do it. Maybe I'll give God the credit for it. We saw some good examples like Jonah last week where God called him to go to Nineveh. Boy, he was going to go down to, uh, he wanted to go to Tarshish. And he went down there and he found a ship going to Tarshish. And he said, praise the Lord, thank the Lord. This is where God wants me to go. But it wasn't. It wasn't. No, when we go God's way, we know exactly where God wants us to go. And there's no question about it. But real Christianity is real simple. It's just going our way or going God's way. Then we saw how that once a man or a woman loses their way with God, and the Bible says that it's now it's a perverted way, and begin to go their own way. Now the Bible says they begin to fret, fret against the Lord. And we talked about the word fretting, how that, uh, you know, it's used a couple of different ways in the Bible. Uh, but in the text that we were looking at, it wasn't fretting over something. It was fretting against the Lord. And I showed you how that in that context, fretting is the fact that when you start going your way and quit going God's way, then the things of God are not pleasing to you and you begin to complain, begin to murmur, you begin to, you know, uh, get an attitude about things, uh, you have no, no joy, joy, joy down in your heart. And in time, uh, as you murmur and complain, you get to the point where you become scornful. You start shedding in judgment of the things of God. Uh, and God may be doing some tremendous things and maybe doing, people may be getting saved and maybe lives are being blessed. But like we talked about last week, you got that one color out of your crayon box, black, and you shade everything that color. And, uh, you know, um, so far we have seen, as I said earlier, some of the most practical material you could ever hope to have. Concepts. Concepts of life through principles. Principles that will help us in everyday life and help us to deal with all the issues that, that we are going to have to face. And I'm going to tell you right up front, the Christian life is never going to be easy. God never promised that it would be easy. But God promised you that he would give you a way through the principles of the word of God that you could get through anything in life. 
And today, I want to begin to read again in Proverbs chapter 19, and we're going to pick it up in verse 4, and believe it or not, we're going to get all the way to verse 8. And uh, that is if, uh, Nate, I want you to pray. If, it depends on how long you pray, how far I'll get. But so, <laughs> go ahead, buddy. Lead us in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I'd like to thank you for everything you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here and keeping us safe, Lord. And we ask you to you, uh, open our hearts and minds up to this message and take it and we can do something with it this, this week, Lord. And Amen. Thank you, pal. Now, verse 4 says, Wealth maketh many friends, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. A false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursueth them with words, yet they are wanting to him. He that getteth wisdom loveth his own soul, and he that keepeth understanding shall find good. Now, let me start by setting a context. And um, I, I think, as I've said many, many times, and you've heard me say this uh, all the time, how important a context is to any passage of Scripture, any book of the Bible, any verse. And uh, we can begin to see the practical side of the verse once we uh, set a context. Now, all of these verses in Proverbs, uh, the whole book of Proverbs, doctrinally, will fit right into the tribulation period. And I've told you that many, many times. That should be no surprise to you. And it's all this material we're looking at here is dealing with the Jew going through the tribulation period, the Antichrist. I mean, in the book of Proverbs, you have an evil man and you have a strange woman. The evil man will be the Antichrist. The strange woman will be the religious system that he follows. Uh, those are the sub-themes of the book of Proverbs. You know that the main theme of Proverbs is a wise man and a foolish man. And uh, a wise man, you know, he gets into the Word of God, he gets God's wisdom, and he keeps from falling for all the things that the Antichrist uh, wants to put out there. And a foolish man, Matthew chapter 25, uh, ten virgins, five were wise and five were foolish. Five took oil in their lamps and did what was right and made it through the end. Five didn't, got caught and trapped in the thing and, and, uh, and uh, got caught in the tribulation period. So we know that all of this doctrinally, is so important to, uh, uh, to understand uh, what's happening. And I know in my own world, in my own life, and I think this is so true uh, in general, that when, this is why I'm such a stickler on it when I teach you the Bible. If you can figure out what the doctrinal application is, the word doctrine means to teach. In other words, everything in the Bible has a specific doctrinal teaching to it. When you get into the book of Proverbs, the teaching isn't about you and me in our walk with God. In the book of Proverbs, as much of the Old Testament, the teaching is directed to the nation of Israel and what they're going through and what they're facing up against this evil man and this strange woman. Once you get that set, once you understand that, once you realize that the specific teaching of any book of the Bible, uh, of what it is, in this case in Proverbs chapter 19, the Antichrist and the nation of Israel, once you see that and you establish that, it's very easy to get to the practical application of it. 
I've told you many, many times how there are so many parallels between you and me as the church and the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. How that the things that happened to them, and Paul even mentions this in the book of, that he wrote to Corinth. He says the things that happened to them were for our examples and our examples and for admonition. He says you learn by the things that they went through. And yet, you know, even though that all this doctrinal stuff is here, we have learned that all this material uh, will contain some of the greatest practical material for all of us. And that's how you, that's how you figure it out. Uh, you don't just start to go in the Bible and put your finger down and then start to read and try to figure it out. You've got to set up the teaching. What is the doctrine? The word doctrine, I'll say it again, it means to teach. Spend your life when you're learning the Bible what the Bible is teaching in any given particular situation. Now, let's begin at verse 4. And let's show you how this thing works here. It says, Wealth maketh many friends, but he, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. Now, let's set the context, as I said, doctrinally first. Now, we saw... We saw it in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 16. We saw it again earlier in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 23. That when the Antichrist, when he comes, he will use bribery and gifts to get the nations of this world to go along with him. He will get them obligated to him through all of the things that he has in his power to give them. He will be the leader of the whole world when he shows up. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around and see the world today is in such disarray. There, there, is, there is nobody on planet Earth today that can solve the problems within their own country, much less globally solve the problems of the world. This is what the world is waiting for. Donald Trump got sworn in as president, the 48th president of the United States on Friday. I don't know if you watched it or not. It was conflicting with my comics, so I didn't get a chance to see it. But it was a thing where, uh, you know, the 48th president of the United States. And he basically won that election simply because of the fact, what you think of him is immaterial to me. I don't really care. I'm just making my point here. He got elected simply because the people of this country are tired and fed up of the way that it's going. And they looked at him as somebody maybe who had never been in politics before, never, certainly not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but they were looking for somebody who, in their mind and, in their mind and expectations, would have their back. Somebody that would care more about them than their little secret deals in Washington. Now, maybe he will or maybe he won't. I don't know. I don't really care. But I understand why people wanted somebody like him in, because they're tired of the status quo. They're tired of what is going on. But I will tell you right now, on the authority of the Word of God, Donald Trump is not going to change much, no matter how good or how bad he is. You know why? Because this country is already on its course. And no man is going to change that. Amen. Nobody is going to step in. He talks about making alliances with, well, you know, I mean, he got clobbered because he uh, talked about Putin over there in Russia, you know, and, and the ties maybe between him and Putin, or Putin likes him, or he likes Putin, whatever the case may be. And he says, well, I think we ought to keep our options open to try to pull all the world leaders together. That ain't ever going to happen. You can be the best guy on the planet. You can drink beer with Putin and eat pretzels, and it isn't going to happen. But I am telling you, there is one man coming 
who is going to pull the whole world together. And when he comes, he's going to be the most powerful man on the world has ever seen because he's going to have control of two areas that will give you absolute power. He's going to be in charge of all the politics and all the religions. You take those two identities and give a man complete power over the world on those things, and he has now the power to do something. And when he has that power, because he has an agenda, he's going to want to align all the nations with him. So he's going to do as it says here. He's going to make many friends through his wealth. He's going to do it through secret gifts to pervert judgment, as we saw earlier in Proverbs. He's going to bribe nations and kings and people. He's going to give the world exactly what they want, even though it's going to be a self, a, 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 a selfless hope, even though it's going to be a, a false sense of security. This is what the world wants. We're living in a world where every time you go to a movie theater, you stand a good chance one in ten of not coming home. We live in a world where your kids go to school in the morning, there's probably a 1 in 50 chance that they won't come home. We live in a world where there is no safe place. And people don't like it. And when this man shows up, he's going to take all that away in a heartbeat. He's going to put an end to all the strife. He's going to put an end to all the bickering. He's going to put an end to all of the, uh, all of the problems in the world. And he's going to seemingly have all the answers and all the issues. And politically and religiously... He's going to pull together everything and bring the nations together. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 16, and Proverbs chapter 7, verse 6 through 23 are two great passages that give you great insight on when he shows up. And the Bible says that with flattering words, flattery words, and favor to men are going to be his main tactics that he will use. Now, the second half of that verse... <coughs> It says that, but the poor is separated from his neighbor. Now, doctrinally, again, setting a context here, there's no question who the poor is. It'll always be the nation of Israel. When you get into Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 10, which is commonly uh, been referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to find uh, in chapter 5, you're going to find where it says, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. You're going to find that in the church age, starting with the time of Christ up to where we're at, when you find any reference in the Bible to the poor, it's going to be the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel have no, uh, till 1948, had no country. They still don't have much of one. Uh, they didn't have a country. They didn't have a, they didn't have a, a leader over them. They, had abs they were the poorest people on the planet as far as coming to a government and religion. And there's no question about it when you get into here and you see this, uh, how that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the poor in spirit, for they shall receive the kingdom of, God, kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the nation of Israel. And in the tribulation period, the Antichrist, his main agenda will be to destroy and to wipe out God's people, which we know to be the nation of Israel. And the reason for that is, is three simple concepts. First of all, the land itself. Back in Genesis, God gave the land grant to Abraham. That land grant goes all the way from Egypt on the west side to Ur of Chaldees or Babylon or what we know uh, 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 today as uh, uh, Iraq, all the way up to southern Turkey. That all was the land grant that was originally given to Abraham. 
At one time, we know from our Bible studies that that all belonged to the devil. And he wants it back. God took it from him and gave it to the nation of Israel. This is why he now hates the nation of Israel. On top of that, they got the land. They also got a city. That city is Jerusalem. It's an interesting study in the Bible to watch how that city develops. Back in Genesis, there was no Jerusalem you could ever find. Now the name of Jerusalem. It developed over time as God's people developed over time, as God's plan developed over time. Many times it's found in the Bible just as Salem. And then later on, it was Jehovah was added to it. Jerusalem, Salem. And it, 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 it comes into being. But God promised them a city. The Bible says that Abraham, when he was journeying and going where God, the Bible says he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. That used to be the spot where the devil's throne was way back in Isaiah before he fell in Ezekiel. He wants that city. Well, I, I, it would be safe to say this morning that every war, every battle, and everything that you want to study down through history, one way or the other, goes back and revolves around that city, Jerusalem. It's been the hot, pot, hot point all down through human history. And it'll continue to be. And then, of course, the third aspect is the crown. God gave Israel the kingdom of heaven. That's a literal, visible kingdom on this earth. He gave them a crown. That crown once belonged to the devil himself before he fell. He wants that crown. So he wants the land back. He wants the city back. And he wants the crown back. In the tribulation period, there's going to come a time when he walks into that city. He goes into the Holy of Holies. He sits down on the throne of God, and he claims to be God and claims the crown of being God. That's what, that's what he wants. Right now, all that goes to Israel, and that's why he hates the nation of Israel. So he will secretly build a false peace with the Jews during the tribulation period, first three and a half years. And then he will align all the other nations to his side through the gifts and the wealth, Proverbs chapter 19, verse 4, making many friends. And then at the middle of the three and a half year mark, he will turn against the Jew. All the nations that he has aligned himself with will turn against the Jew and will enter into the time period in the Bible, which is commonly called the Great Tribulation Period. The last three and a half years where he wants to wipe out the nation of Israel. And America is included in this. If you want to find America in the prophecies of the Antichrist, go to Daniel chapter 7 and line it up with Daniel chapter 2. See Jeremiah chapter 31. Go over to Zechariah chapter 14 verse 2. All this material can be found in those passages. Go to Daniel chapter 11, verses 24 through 27. Look at the great aspect and concept of Daniel's 70th week. And how he says right in the middle of that week, middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist goes after the Jew. Go over to Zechariah chapter 11, verses 7 through 17, where it talks about an idol, spelled like uh, false god, I-D-O-L. An idol shepherd who builds a bond between the brotherhood of Judah and Israel, and then he breaks that bond. That'll be the Antichrist. Go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9, where it talks about in the first three and a half years that he builds a, a society that gives the illusion of peace and safety. But in Matthew chapter 24, at the middle of the week, he enters in and commits what the Bible calls the abomination of desolations. 
And the Bible says, sudden destruction. Then he wipes out the nation of Israel, or he tries to. Now that's the doctrinal concept. And it's very important for you to understand, be able to lay those out in your Bible. My goal is the way I teach the Bible is to try to get anybody who's interested in doing it to be able to do that. But now let me flip over and show the inspirational and see how easy this is. Because again, inspirationally it is so true. The more money you have, the more friends you have. Somebody said one time, I got all the friends I can afford right now, but thank you very much. <laughs> if you won $300 million in the lottery today, by Monday, when the word got out, you'd have relatives knocking on your door you didn't even know you had. All kinds of friends would suddenly show up. Your next door neighbor who kicked your dog and, and complained about you didn't mow your lawn enough. And uh, he'd be over on your door bringing a plum pie pudding that his wife made for you. And congratulations. Pie in one hand, hand out in the other. I mean, when you can buy all the rounds of drinks, when you can pick up the tab for everybody's dinner, when you can host all of the fun parties, I woke up this morning, I got to tell you this little story. Woke up this morning, came down, looked at my phone, and it was a text on my phone. Didn't recognize the number, and it simply said, what's going on? <laughs> well, I, I, I text back, I said, I said um, who's this? And they text back a few minutes later, and he says, he says, uh, this is, my name is, weird name, who are you? And I text back and I said, my name is Bob. And I said, I got this text on my phone at 5, 5.30 this morning. And it said, what's up? And I said, I didn't know who it was. So I was just trying to text back and, and, and see uh, what, who it was and what was up. About five minutes later, I get another text on it. He comes back and he says, oh, he says, I was trying to get a hold of, I was trying to get a hold of a, uh, of a girl. I text back. I said, okay, no problem. Thank you. I hope you find her. <laughs> Five minutes later, he texts back and he says, hey, I'm really sorry about that. Do you know any girls that like the party? <laughs> I didn't have the heart to text him back and tell him I was 66 years old and my partying days are just about over. But I mean, when you buy all the rounds of drinks, everybody's your friend. When you pick up the tab, when you host the great parties, the fun parties, which this guy probably doesn't get invited to, <laughs> your friends will be endless right after the part where your money runs out. And then so will your friends. You know, the example of this is found in, uh, in the Bible in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, in the great story of the prodigal son. Now, here's a guy that, that uh, he, he was living with his dad, him and his brother. He got discontented with the things of the Ponderosa, where they had there, you know, and a, probably a nice place to live. And he wanted his inheritance. And he, his dad gave him his inheritance, he left. He thought that the world out there was better than what his father had for him. Now that's a picture of the nation of Israel. Mel Sabaka used to have a message that he preached on this, where he, in the title it was, uh, The Grass is Greener on the Other Side of the Hill. But where do you see the water bill? 
And the Bible says down in there that he took his substance and he, he wasted it on riotous living. And you know what he did. We all like to be friends. We all want to have friends. Nobody likes not being having friends. And we're smart enough to know, or dumb enough, however you want to put it, that if you have an inheritance, which probably was a pretty good sum here, you don't have to be lonely if you play it right. You walk into a nightclub someplace and you don't know anybody. Somebody introduces yourself to you. Let me buy you a drink. Buy, buy the guy a drink. You talk a little bit. And, and his, this is my Pretty soon you're buying everybody a drink. You're everybody's friend. You have bought your way in now. And that's the way it works. And I guarantee you that's what he did. He didn't know anybody out there in the far country. But he didn't have to know anybody because he, he had his substance. He had his inheritance. And the Bible says that, that he wasted his substance on riotous living. Now what does that suggest to you? He tithed off of it and went to church? <laughs> he wasted it on riotous living. He was right in the middle of it. And then the Bible says down in the next verse, and when he has spent all that he had, he winds up in a pig pen. He has to go to a work for a guy, and he's eating the same food that the pigs are eating. What happened to all his friends? What happened to all the riotous living that was going on? His money ran out. His substance ran out. And in life, the verse is so true. You better build friendship on something more than what you give people. And he lost it all. I mean, the passage is, is so self-explanatory. This guy went in there and, and uh, you know, he, 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 he spent all that he had having a great time. And when he didn't have any more, I mean, when he lost all that he had, how come his friends that he was hanging out with didn't say, well, come on over and stay with me. Move into my apartment. I got room. How did he wind up from riotous living, have a great time to the pig pen? You know why? Because when his money was gone, his friends were gone. It's a great principle. Now look at the second part of the verse. But the poor is separated from his neighbor. Now in life, in society, uh, poor people are always looked at as second class. They're looked down upon by those who have a quality life. And I noticed, again, I, I, uh, at the, after Trump was, was inaugurated, you know, they had all of the, the balls that night and the military ball and the, who are all the other places they went to. I mean, if you could have just collected the money that those were spent on those dresses, <laughs> you could have fed all the poor in the world. But you know what? If you look at that and people are walking in with their gowns and their tuxedos, weren't any poor people there. Uh, you know, I, 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 I am always, I've just, I've always suspect the people who say, I got your back and I'm going to be there for the poor guy and the little guy. But then when you throw a big shindig, there's no little guys there. Uh, things like that just bother me. I mean, I guess you couldn't got in with holy blue jeans and a sweatshirt on, but, uh, you know, I mean, come on. In most churches, rich people rule. The down and out people don't get anything. Most churches, they preach the gospel and they, they stand for what they think they stand for. But in reality, they're much like the Hindus. They have a caste system. And you're put in a position based on 
how much money you have. Shoot, I grew up in this system, man. You don't have to tell me. I've been in it since 1972. That's before most of you were born. <laughs> I've seen how it works. I've seen when they pick up deacons and put deacons on the board, they picked up the ones who gave the most in church. I, I know that the pastor put him in position and he traded positions for that for what he was going to get back from them. I mean, poor people struggle, rich people rule. You go to a church that caters to big people and you're, you're a kind of a, someone who's just a, a lower middle class or a middle class person and uh, you don't meet up to those high standards of everybody else, you'd have the hardest time in the world getting to, getting to talk to your pastor about any problem you got. There'd be rich people in line all over the place. You know why? You don't, you don't bring anything to the party. I mean, you do, but he can't see it. And rich people who have things want to separate themselves from those who don't. They're not in our social class. I always have to chuckle and laugh around Christmas and usually probably more Thanksgiving. I go to the grocery store, you know, to Hy-Vee or one of those places, and there'll, there'll be a, a church out there, a large church, you know, will, will want to be collecting food for all the poor people, you know, and the homeless people. And they'll park this big truck out there in front of the place, and they'll have all their people out there, you know, and the ladies are wearing designer jeans and designer boots and designer jackets, you know, and they're picking these little flyers. When you go get your groceries, would you buy a few extra things and give them to us, and we're going to take them down to the poor, and they got this big food truck there at Hy-Vee, and they collect all that food, and they're standing around there, and, and I, I'm, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not knocking it at all, but when they're done, they take that food down to Harvest or the Salvation Army, which are two great organizations. Never one time did they ever get down on the level where the people are and take the food down to them. You know why that verse is true? Because they want to they they get a good warm feeling, but they want to separate themselves from the poor. You ever notice how unbiblical most Christians are today? The greatest criticism that Christ faced was the fact that he spent so much time with the poor. The publicans and the sinners. And his answer to them every time the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees came at him was the fact, yeah, really? Well, the whole you have no need of a physician. They do. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees never one time gave any attention to the poor. There was no value to it in it. There was no merit to them. Why, even the disciples got to the place where they, they didn't want the Lord associating with a certain crowd. One time a bunch of little kids come up. Little kids can't give anything. And they were all upset to try to keep the kids back because, you know, they got their white robes on and little kids get dirty fingers and hands and you might stain my white garments, you know. I'm an apostle. I'm with him. I'm the Lord. I'm the number one, by the way. Don't listen to anybody else. You know, that's how it went. And these little kids came up and they said, let's keep the kids back now. We got to do God's business here. Let's really get to where it's at. And you know what Jesus said? He said, hey, knock it off. Let me tell you something. Except you come to me as a little child, you got no part of me. Jesus was never big on rich people. You know what he said one time? He says, it's, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. You know why? Because riches obscure your faith. I mean, I've met rich people in, in my life who, who did good things for the Lord. I'm not saying they don't, but I'm going to tell you something. It's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing in your life to have so much that you don't have to trust God for much. I'm going to tell you something. Amen. That's good for you. Good for all of us. Jesus was with them all the time. 
you know, I, I, I'm not much on the Roman Catholic Church, and I, you know, I understand for what it is. But I got to tell you something. This Pope they have now, this Pope, is it Francis? I can't keep up with them since they asked me to be it, and I turned it down. I didn't get to it. I didn't know. I like this guy. I really do. I mean, uh, you know, you get to be Pope. Boy, you gotta you you, you gotta be political. You gotta you gotta be in this. You gotta be in the pipeline. You gotta be in the system. But every once in a while, somebody will get in who is not part of the system. And and I think many times that he's somewhat of an embarrassment to the Roman Catholic Church. Because I know the Roman Catholic Church hierarchy, they, they, they have their, I mean, he's now considering the fact that if you've been divorced, you can still take communion in the church. Well, that never happened before. I mean, if you were divorced in a Catholic church, you're done, you're in hell, you ain't ever getting out. He's changing things around. No, I, I, it doesn't matter. You can take communion all you want and still die and go to hell. But um, my point is that he's, he's breaking with the tradition of the old hardline deal. You know, he won't live in a Vatican mansion. I mean, if you ever saw the Vatican in the mansion that they have and the popes lived in, it's unbelievable. He won't. He lives in just a little flat over there, and he refuses to wear all the holy garments unless he's in a ceremony someplace that he has to. He wears just the robe that he wore when he was out there. He's always been with the poor people. And I, I mean, I, I, I feel bad about it. I mean, here's a guy that's probably lost and on his way to hell, and yet he, he takes better poor than most of God's people do. And believe me, the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't all die out in 33 A.D. They're alive and well today. And most Christians are not comfortable around poor people. It makes them nervous. Now, I know there's a lot of scams going on out there. I know that. You drive down to downtown someplace and, or wherever you go anymore, and there's some homeless guy on every street corner. Now, that's a big business if you don't know that or not. Uh, they rent those corners. I mean, they, 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 that's, a, that's a ripoff from start to finish. I'm not thinking it started that way, but somebody saw a good idea. I'm all, and I'm always skeptical of somebody that says, help me, I'm homeless, when they're talking on their cell phone. I'm always skeptical when somebody says, help me, I'm homeless, I need to eat, but they're smoking on a cigarette. I haven't bought a pack of cigarettes for a week or two, but it's a lot of money. <laughs> Certainly enough to buy a Big Mac and a cheeseburger someplace. And so I look at that, and I see that, and I, and I know, you know, it, and I've watched them. I, 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 one time I just, I, when nobody was there, the guy was just kind of, I was parked over here with a pair of binoculars, and I, I just wanted to watch. <laughs> And I parked over here in the parking lot and was watching, you know, and there was nobody was coming around. The guy was just kind of standing around. When people come up, then he'd start to shiver, you know. It was an act. I had a $100 gift card that I had already spent. <laughs> and I drove around the block and I said, hey, this is for you. So I saw his eyes light up. Not as much as they lit up when he tried to use it. It's a sham. For years, when we started our church, we never had a sign out front. I, I told you, you're the sign. And we church just grew just fine. And when we moved over here, well, we had one over at the other place so people could find it. But the moment we put a sign up, the moment we put a sign up, I started getting people coming in, wanting a handout. Now, I'm all for helping people, but I'd help the people in my church first. I had a guy call me a couple weeks ago, and he was over here in Independence, and he wanted somebody, he wanted my church to come pick him up, take him to Walmart. And he got indignant because I didn't have a whole line of people just ready to go on the Walmart detail. 
And you know what, what the second thing would have been when you got into Walmart? He wouldn't have had any money to pay for anything. Hey, I've had them come in to me. I had them come in to me where they brought their little kids, four or five little kids. They came in with a sad story and the mom and dad and the kids were, were, were dirty and, 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 and looked like they were hungry. And the guy called me. He said, you know what? We're up here from Georgia and, uh, uh, you know, we're, uh, uh, we're, uh, you know, we're, where our car broke down and my kids hadn't eaten for two days, you know, and, and uh, we just thought maybe the church could help out. And uh, uh, we go to a Baptist church down there and, we're, you know, and I, and I said, good, praise the Lord. And I said, you know what? We will help you. What do you need? How's, I said, is three, four hundred dollars okay to you? Oh, boy, you thought he died and went to heaven. I said, I only need one thing. We're Christians, we need to help each other, but obviously you know the world we live in is a lot of phony stuff out there. You said you go to a Baptist church, you remember that Baptist church. Give me your pastor's name. I want to call him. I want to verify that that's where you go to church, that you're in that church, and uh, I'll be glad to help you. Well, you know, suddenly he didn't remember the name of the church. <laughs> he had no idea who the pastor was. But just 30 seconds ago, he was in this church. It was a good church, and he was a Baptist, and that's why he came to this Baptist church. It was a sham from beginning to end. Now, I helped him. Didn't give him as much as I said it was going but I helped him. But he heard a great sermon while he was counting the money. Amen. And I told him about he had to be ashamed of himself bringing his kids in here under the guise of a lie. And I said, you know what? I said, if you were true and you were in a church down there and you were a good church and your pastor stood up for you, I'd have given you everything. I'd have had your car fixed for you. Because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and the fact that you're up here and you're broke down and you don't have the money, if I can do that for you, I would hope that you would do that for one of my people if your pastor was down there. So much phoniness today. But there's real people out there who are hurting. There's real people out there that you need to understand that, that Jesus, he, he shifted through them. And if they're legitimately out there, then we need to help them. I mean, loving the unlovable was the greatest quality that Christ had. And I, and I tell you, I, I just tell you. I mean, and let me say this to you, and here it comes again. Our view of the poor in life will always go back and be based on our understanding of how God viewed you and me the first time he saw us. We were about as needy, poor, and destitute as anybody on any street corner. We were worthless. And that Bible says in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. We forget that a lot of time, don't we? I know I do. When you got saved, you weren't as good off as you are now. You know, sometimes, sometimes the blessings of God can be also the curse of God. Get spoiled. Take things for granted. You know, I, it's one of the honest things that I struggle with here. I've said this before to you. I think in people ministry. I try to give you everything I know in the Bible. Yeah. I don't hold anything back from you. Amen. And I think that's a good thing and I think it can be a bad thing. Because mm-hmm. I think sometimes God's people get so much of the Bible, they take it for granted and they get spoiled. Yeah. There's a balance in it. 
You know, if you have your own kid and you start giving your kid everything he wants and don't let anything back, you know that you have the potential to have some problem with your kid. Well, you know, God's kids are the same way. I mean, I, I, I don't know much about anything in life, but I've got to be honest, I know a little bit about the Bible, but I've never held anything back of what I know. You have a need, I answer it. I give it to you. You want to come over and go through this book of the Bible? I'll do it. You come on Thursday night and you want to ask whatever question you want to ask, let's do it. I come on a Sunday morning and give you the best I can, the best shot I can to try to give you what you need to get you through life and help you through there. There's never a time that I never didn't answer my phone. I don't shut my phone off and say, you don't call me after 5. It's 5.30. Uh, I, 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 I try to do whatever I can to give everybody what they need. And you know what? That is a good thing, but it can also be a bad thing. Because some of God's people take all of that and take all of that and take all of that and they get spoiled with the knowledge that they have and they come to the point that it becomes a problem for them. The Bible says the full soul loatheth the honeycomb. Too much of anything without a balance is not good. You can become so spiritual that you're not worth anything to anybody. And you can get so much Bible down that if you're not willing, you know, we're all like sponges. And the problem is you take a sponge and you, you mop the floor with it or you clean something up with it and you, it picks up water great. But there comes a point where it gets saturated and then all you do is push a lot of water around and it won't pick anything up anymore. And then what you've got to do at that point is take that and wring it out so you can pick up some more. The problem with a lot of God's people, you keep sopping it up but you never let God wring you out. So you're like my sponge, just flat and floating in the top of the water. The blessings of God need to have a balance. And for me, the balance in life of all that God gives me and all that I have with God and all that he's bestowed upon me and my house and my car and my clothes and all that God gives that I don't ever get to the point, I think the greatest balance that any child of God can have is the poor. Every time you look at somebody that doesn't have something, you thank God for what you have and realize that it could be you. I tried to raise my kids that way. I remember... Both, both of you wanted a pair of shoes at one time. <laughs> and I wasn't, didn't have, didn't, wasn't going to buy the shoes. You already had more shoes than, than you needed. And I remember, remember we were out at the mall, the old uh, mall out here at uh, Bannister Mall. And there was a guy there begging that didn't have any legs. <laughs> and I, I said to my kids, I said, then they were there young, what were you, like six or seven, I may be younger than that, and they, they were crying because they couldn't get their shoes they wanted. And so I'm going to make a spiritual point. And I said, I walked by, and I put some money in the guy's hat, and I walked down there, and I said, now girls, you're crying because you don't have any shoes. Here's a man that does not have any feet. And her answer was classic. But daddy, he doesn't need any shoes. We do. <laughs> I've failed as a father in many ways. <laughs> we forgot the fact that the first time God saw us when he was holy, how I was unholy. 
We get so pompous and show up with what we know about the Bible and all that we have, and we know we can just, how that when he first saw us, how, how clean he was and how filthy I was. We have so much Bible now, you know. We have so much Bible now. We don't have anything going on in life, so we have all the room to complain about how much Bible we have. We're in a place where, honestly, and allow me to say this, if you don't like it, tough apples, you're in a place where you can have all of the Bible you want as much as you want, and you complain about what you don't get. I remember the time when, when he first saw you and me that, that, that he was light. He was the light that shineth in darkness. But my life and your life was that darkness. Yes. Oh, there was a time when we were destitute. There was a time when our poverty was much more than any physical poverty, though many of us were at that point in time. But spiritually, we were totally, completely destitute. Yes. And now what, God? He gave us the Bible. He gave us what we have, what we know. He gave you your wife or your husband, your kids, your family, your good job, and all that we have. And a church that will teach you the Bible inside out, upside down, whatever you want. And yet we complain. I'm telling you. We never want to forget how he saw us. Because that'll be exactly how that you and I need to see the poor. Never forget the day that God had compassion on you and me. And never let the day come into our lives because of that, that we will not have compassion on others. Look at verse 5. I feel like I could stop right here and give an invitation and probably get it pretty good. <laughs> A false witness shall be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Now here again, doctrinally, get the context. Tribulation again. This will be the judgment of the nations found in Matthew uh, chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. And it says there in Matthew chapter 25, in those passages, when the Son of Man shall come in His glory, he shall, he shall sit upon the throne of His glory, and it says He shall gather all nations before Him. And what He does at that time is He separates, as the Bible says in the passage, the sheep from the goats. The sheep are the ones who helped Israel. The goats are the ones who were a false witness against Israel and spoke lies against them. Now, inspirationally, it's true. It's true. And you want to learn some things today. You will not do the work of God without somebody lying about you. You will not get involved and do the things that God wants you to do. Lying about a child, and we get the idea that lying about a child of God uh, that's doing what God's called them to do, that it, it, that it hurts that woman or that man who's doing it. Uh, but I got news for you, it will never hurt that person. Now that may be the agenda of somebody who wants to lie about somebody or false witness against somebody, but at the end of the day, it'll always, it'll never hurt the one that was attended to, by the end of the day, it'll always come back on the one who did it. You see it all the time. Why, in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16, the six things that God hates, the main tool that he uses in a church aid is sowing discord among the brethren. And what I want you to look at in this passage, and here's a little example of how you unlock a passage of Scripture. 
two key words. This is how it will come back on somebody. The first word is, be not unpunished. That'll be in this life. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. The second phrase, or the second set of words, that shall not escape. That'll be the judgment seat of Christ. Two concepts to consider here. Not be unpunished. Now, <clears throat> all my life, I've seen Christians lie about other Christians. I think many times they, they don't want to face whatever they're dealing with or whatever, so it's easier to lie about it, to make themselves look good. There's all kinds of reasons for it, but it happens. You know it does. So I've been around it all of my life, been a victim of it many, many times in my life, and so has many of you. And you know what? You can get away with lying or slandering someone, most people, right up until the point to you run into the wrong person. The one that knows the Bible uh, and their goal in life is to make sure the record always gets set straight. This will be a man or a woman whose view, uh, who views their integrity as something that's very important to them. They will go to any length. All my life, I have been accused of teaching heresy. I mean, people accuse me of teaching heresy about everything in the Bible. And most of it I don't mind because it's way out there, but if it's somebody in my general world over the years, I've made a thousand phone calls. And simply said, hey, you said I taught heresy. My integrity as a pastor in the ministry is number one to me. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to get the person that you said it to. I'm going to get you and I'm going to get me. And we're going to sit down. We're going to open up our Bibles and you show me my heresy. You know, and all the phone calls I've made, that never happened one time. You know why it never happened one time? Because I wasn't teaching heresy. But that's what people do. I'm someone who, in my mind, in my heart, <clears throat> the integrity of the ministry is the number one thing in life of the ministry. And I'm here to tell you right now, I can't speak for every other pastor, but I will always set the record straight. <coughs> A thousand times in my ministry, I've made that phone call. Hey, Tim. Bob here, how you doing? Good. Bob, how are you? Fine. Listen, I got a little situation I want to talk to you about. So-and-so said that you told them that I said this about you, or I said this to this person. And I said, I just think we need to sit down with this guy and you and me, uh, because I think you know by now that that's not, I didn't say that. You see, you can get away with it until somebody holds you accountable with it. Most Christians won't hold anybody accountable with it. Now this will be, like I said, it, it's a thing where, you know, you, you, you have to come to the place where you realize if it takes calling a meeting, if it takes getting everybody involved to sit down. But the Bible says, we talked about it last week, that the number one key of the Word of God, the number one prophet word of God, was to be the manifestation of truth. Uh, I deal with a situation like this. Hey, I know I do a lot of stupid things. I do. And now I tend to sometimes say something that I probably shouldn't say. But when I go into a situation like that, I have one rule that I follow. No, question, no quarter asked and no quarter given. If I said something that was out of line and was wrong that I shouldn't have said, I'll be the first one to say I was dead wrong and I shouldn't have said it and apologize to the next 5,643 people I need to do it. But if you lied and I didn't say it, no quarter asked, no quarter given. 
It's nothing more important than the integrity of the ministry. This is what's wrong with churches today. This is what's wrong with the ministry today. People look at it and there's no integrity in it. You never know when you're getting the truth. You never know what the truth really is. And if God's people would all do that, we'd put an end to the lying and the slander. People would know that they're not going to get away with it. It would be that brick wall concept that you know you ain't going any farther than here. Nothing like holding someone to accountable with what they say to set the record straight. This is why the social media is so popular today. The courage behind the keyboard. Being able to say whatever you want to say and nobody can confront you with it. And then it just goes back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, but nothing ever gets accomplished. People get away with slander and lying about whatever they want to do because nobody will challenge them uh, with the truth. And I guarantee you, when you do that, it ends. It ends. Now, the second thing here, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. And where the first one is dealing with it in life by manifestation of truth, holding everybody accountable, including yourself, the second one has to do with the judgment seat of Christ. Romans 14, 12 says, So then every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And if you know anything about Romans 14 at all, you know that the context of Romans 14.10 is we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It's one of the two definitive passages. The other would be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Luke chapter 16 verse 2 says that we'll give an account of our stewardship. The judgment seat of Christ is going to be a great day of accounting. You're going to give an account of everything that we said, everything that we did, and we're going to give an account of the things that we were to be stewards over that God made us stewards. And there's seven of them in the Bible, and the tragedy is that most of God's people don't even know what they are. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I say unto you that every, every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account of in the day of judgment. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. I've given it many, many times, the six questions in Job chapter 26, verses 1 through 4, that God's going to probably answer the judgment seat of Christ. Three of them are incredible. Number one in verse 4 was, To whom hast thou uttered words? We all use words. The second one in verse 4 was, uh, Whose spirit came from thee with those words? And the third one there in verse 3 was, How hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? In other words, here's what he's saying. To whom hast thou uttered words? What did you say? Whose spirit came from thee? What was your motive behind what you said? And how hast thou plentifully declared the thing as it is? Was it the truth? And he that speaketh lies shall not escape. So you see the two aspects to it. You see an aspect in this life where uh, someone who uh, tells lies against somebody, whoever it may be, that uh, they're going to have to give an account for it. I mean, it's just that simple. And it, it will not go unpunished. Oh, they shouldn't. And then you see the second aspect of the, uh, they're not going to escape. They're not going to escape the judgment seat of Christ. You see, you may escape everything down here, but you will not escape in the judgment seat of Christ. Look at verse 6. Many will entreat the favor of the prince, and every man is a friend to him that giveth gifts. Now again, 
setting the context, doctrinally, very clear this will be our man of sin, the Antichrist. The prince, we know that the Antichrist has a false trinity, just like God has a trinity. God has the God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The devil has the Antichrist, the beast, the image, and the false prophet, Revelation chapter 13. And this goes right along with verse 4. We already saw it. The man of sin bringing in uh, the, 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 to the people uh, and aligning them through the gifts and the favors and ultimately go against the nation of Israel. The verse shows people coming uh, to the Antichrist to uh, take what he gives them and then he gets them obligated to him and he uses it to control them. Literally in the tribulation period, these people will sell their souls to him, much like people do today. Look at verse 7. It's all go right along with our context. All the brethren of the poor do hate him. How much more do his friends go far from him? He pursueth them with words, yet they are wanting to him. Wanting is an old English word. It means of no use. I don't want you. I don't want anything to do with you. <clears throat> right now, when it comes to the nation of Israel, in a practical sense, only two nations that stand for Israel. One of them is the United States, and the other one is England. And yet, before your very eyes, you watch that, you can watch that erode very, very slowly. England already, much to their, to their downfall, and of course America, uh, right on the way with it. You can see their attitude change toward the people of God. And those are the only two nations left. Every other nation on earth has hated them and is wanting toward them. They want to stay as far from him as they can. The Roman Catholic Church, the premier religion on the planet, has never acknowledged the nation of Israel as a country. They've never It wasn't until Vatican II that they eradicated them from being Christ killers, which was in the 1960s. They have never recognized the state of Israel. But yet... They recognized the Palestinians, brought Yasser Arafat over there to the Vatican, kissed him, blessed him, gave him the papal blessing. His wife is a Roman Catholic, by the way, was. She, they're both dead, or at least he is. But never, never, never recognized the nation of Israel. You know, the UN was founded after World War I. Back then it was called the League of Nations. And it was a war to stop the aggression uh, in all of the world. Uh, and it, uh, it was to stand up for uh, all the little nations that were being beat up by all the big nations. And they formed an alliance through NATO that every country would put troops together to form a NATO force, a national alliance that would go into some country and keep the peace. They've done it all over the world. They've never done it with Israel. They stay far from them. In fact, in 1948... When the nation of Israel become a nation, I think it was May the 14th, on that night at midnight, when they signed that declaration to declare themselves a state, the very next hour, the Arab League attacked them. And for the next, up to the 1960s, there was four more wars to try to wipe out the nation of Israel. And every time, every time the nation of Israel won those wars, beat the enemies, took their land... Now, these are the nations that wanted to wipe them out. They took their land, they defeated them, and moved in all the way down in one of them to the Suez Canal. You know what happened? The United Nations stepped in and said, you've got to give the land back. You won, but you can't keep it. They never did that to the Palestinians. The whole world's against the nation of Israel. It goes on and it says, all the brethren 
The brethren here will be the Gentiles. It'll be the church. You and me. The Bible says the salvation is of the Jews in John 4.22. Within the family of God, which is laid out in Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter uh, 3, uh, you'll find that uh, uh, when you go through the Romans chapter 9 and Romans chapter 11, that we as Gentiles are the wild olive trees that were grafted in with the natural branches of Israel. We're brethren in that sense. And yet I look all around Christianity today. Churches are abandoning the nation of Israel, losing their perspective on who Israel is. Many of them are totally against them. Verse 7 says, how much more do his friends go far from him? That's the United States and England. England, in 1918, 1917, uh, put forth the Belfar Declaration. That was, a, that was a declaration to give the land back to the Jew. They reneged on it. America had always been the friend of the Jew, recognized her as a state of Israel when she came into being in 1948. Now she's turning her back on her. You saw it a couple of, what, a month ago in the political arena. The Jews are moving into the, into the Palestinian territory and building settlements. Obama gets up and makes a speech against it. Oh, Kerry gets up and you know who Kerry is, you know, the Secretary of Defense, the one who threw his medals over the fence when he came back from Vietnam, that guy. Now he's the Secretary of Defense, but he wasn't too keen on defending you back then when he got his long hair and threw his medals over the bar, over the White House fence and gave them back because of the war in Vietnam. It's just me. It's just me. They tore him apart. They said some of the most scathing things to them for taking into that, in, you know, into that area and building settlements that belonged to the Palestinians. And the Bible says that uh, uh, the Bible says in that verse that uh, they speak with many words. Old Netanyahu got on the thing over there and pleaded with America, pleaded with people to see their need. I'm no under illusion about anything in this country. I watched the I watched the inauguration the other day when Trump came up and they swore him in, he put his hand on a Bible. It's the same Bible that's been used for I don't know how many years. Obama put his hand on it. And you know when I look at something like that and I think to myself, that's exactly, 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 exactly what's wrong with not only this country, but with Christianity. They put their hand on a Bible and swear to something and they don't know one thing that's in that Bible. Obama put his hand on that same Bible four years ago and then four years before that. And he swore that he'd uphold everything. That I, and I guess the Bible means that God is going to be part of it and you're going to base it on the Bible. And in that Bible that you put your hands on in Galatians chapter 4, it says that that land belongs to the Jew. And when it comes to the Arab, when it comes to the Muslim, when it comes to the, uh, the Ishmaelites uh, uh, down through Hagar, you know what it says? It says, kick them out of the land. Right. Here you are putting your hand on a Bible that states the case for Israel and then denying that case and going against what it said. Oh, man, don't kid me with it. And I see God's people doing the same thing. I see God's people getting up and saying, oh, I love God. And yeah, I'm saved and I'm going to heaven. And you don't know the first thing about that Bible, nor are you going to. Galatians chapter 4, verse 28 through 31 says, Throw out the bondwoman. Get her out of there. That land's not hers. 
Israel's going in and building settlements over there, and our country says you shouldn't do that because that belongs to the Palestinians. Not according to God, it doesn't. That's Gad and Ephraim's land. And when the Lord comes back, if you can't kick them out, he's going to kick them out. And they'll be building all the settlements they want then. Maybe you ought to put your hand on a cookbook. <laughs> Maybe you just ought to get a stack of National Geographics. Look at verse 8 and 9. Two great contrasts here. He that getteth wisdom loveth his own soul. He that keepeth understanding shall find good. A false witness shall not be unpunished. And he that speaketh lies shall perish. Now that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great contrast. Verse 8 says, He that getteth wisdom loveth his own soul. Last week I showed you how that the soul and body are used interchangeably. And it says, He that keepeth understanding shall find good. Now let me show you what you got here. This is, this is vital. If you didn't get anything else out of what I'm about to say, out of what I've said, get this. You've got to love the verse. It simply says, if you work to get wisdom, study the show thyself approve and a God of workman. You work to get wisdom, and in time, when that wisdom turns into understanding, and the Bible says in verse 8, you keep it. Now that's the key. The key isn't just getting understanding. The key is that once you get it, it's to keep it. Hold on to it. Why? Because when you go God's way and walk, walk with Him and go, go to work for Him and you get the wisdom and it turns into understanding and it will always in any situation allow you to see the good that's in it. The good. What God is doing in any given situation that helps you see it, not as it appears, but as it is by what God is doing. Most God's people today cannot see the good in anything or anybody. They're so negative in their approach on anything for whatever reason. They can't look at a person and see the good. They can't see a situation and see the good. All they see is what they want to see because they don't have understanding. The art of keeping understanding in our lives to find the good in any situation. You know what? You look at Job's life. How negative was Job's life? Is there anybody here that wants to trade places with Job? Is there anybody here that wants to lose your family, lose all your possessions, get some terminal disease and go through it? We look at that and that is the most negative concept life you could ever find in the Bible. But when you study it through the eyes of the Bible and the principles, there was good in it. He got double back everything he lost, the blessings of God. You know, you might have to go through some tough time things in life. Yeah, the reason why you give up and the reason why you falter and the reason why you stumble is this verse right here. You don't have the wisdom and the understanding to see whatever you're going through. There's good in it. We're so selfish and we're so about us and we're so lost our perspective of where, 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 what I don't have. You can't see what God is doing in any situation and say, ah, oh, there's the good. Abraham went through all kinds of problems. He had one struggle after the other. He did. Uh, but, but you look at his life and you see it. He fails and his failures and his struggles and his insecurities and all the things that he went through. And then you get the wisdom and understanding and you say, what was the good in it? Became God's friend. Yes. Yes. 
The death of Christ on the cross. He died. He hung there. He agonized from the sixth to the ninth hour. The devil literally brought hell to him and he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he goes through the agony. I thirst. What was the good in it? You and me sitting here this morning. There'll be some negative things. Life is about negative things. There'll be some negative things in life you go through. You're either going to complain about it, whine about it, or you're going to get the understanding of God and you're going to see the good in it. Oh, and the great contrast verse. A false witness shall be unpunished and he that speaketh lies shall perish. In both cases, to Israel and inspirationally to you, doctrine and inspiration is simply saying this, a life of going your way with the things that you love. Like Psalms 1 last week, taking the counsel of the ungodly, standing in the way of sinners, or in time sitting in the seat of the scornful, or walking with God, delighting yourself in the law of the Lord. And as Psalm 37 said last week, Trust in the Lord. Delight thyself also in the Lord. Commit thy way unto the Lord. And then you rest in the Lord. It's your way or his way. We live in a Laodicean church period. And you find all over the place today. I hear it all the time. All this talk in Christianity about uh, always being positive. Not being negative. That's so typical of the book of Proverbs. Did you see those verses this read? The first half was positive. The second half was negative. You realize that that's the reality of life? You're going to have negative and you're going to have positive? Everybody wants to be positive today. Positive preaching. Positive teaching. Joe Olstein. I looked at him today as I was getting dressed to come to church. That big old auditorium. 30,000 people showed up. We got a little over 220 here today. What's wrong with you? Why are we packing out this one and that one and upstairs? Why don't we have TV cameras for the overflow? Why I got one of those mics that come around the side of your mouth. Why will we never reach 30,000 people? I'll tell you why. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm not going to pretend it's all good in life. I'm not going to pretend you're always okay. I'm not going to get up here and tell you that, that you, we, we don't have problems in our life we've got to work on. I'm going to preach to you about there is a hell. I'm going to preach to you about that there's a coming judgment. I'm not going to tell you that there's no sin, that you can do whatever you want. I'm going to tell you over and over again that we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. I'm going to tell you there's times that you're going to get out of fellowship. I'm going to get out of fellowship. And I'm going to tell you that Christianity is not some one big campfire of us holding hands and singing kumbaya. Amen. You ever notice how the Bible, without a doubt, is the most negative book you ever saw in your life? This is, why, this is why people won't read it. This is why they actually hate it. I mean, I know it's got the positive message of salvation and the blessings of God. I get it. It's got a lot of good things for you if you do what's right. But I want to tell you something. 80% of that Bible is blood, sweat, and tears, brother. 
That Bible lays out graphically the sins, the failures, the tragedies of thousands of people within its pages. Did you ever read Deuteronomy chapter 4? Of course you haven't. You ever read Deuteronomy chapter 11? You bet you never did. You ever read Deuteronomy chapter 28? You know when you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 63 and Matthew chapter 25 verse 41, those are the two most terrible negative statements ever given to mankind by God. The one over there in Matthew 25 is the most terrible words, negative, that anybody will ever hear. Depart from me, ye cursed, in everlasting fire and brimstone. You know what the other one is? Deuteronomy 28, 63. That one is real positive. It simply says, when you don't do what's right, and you walk your way, and you do it your way, God rejoices in your destruction. Of course you haven't. I was into the people ministry a couple of weeks ago. We entered into the book of the prophets. We've been coming through. We finally broke into Isaiah. And I showed them. I said, you know what? You have 39 books in the Old Testament. 17 of them are the prophets. And in the books of the prophets, 17, there isn't one positive thing. There isn't one ray of hope, one ray of light. It is nothing but God going to come down and trash you. Now, why is that? I'll tell you why. Because the prophets were a group of people that God sent to a backsliding nation to tell them that the way they were going was the wrong way and they better get back with God. And here's what's going to happen if you don't. Did they like it? Anybody here think they liked it? Go to Hebrews chapter 11 and see what they did with the prophets. They put Jeremiah down in a, in a dung pit. Some of them they cut in half. They stoned them. They beat them. They hated them. Why? Because they had the truth to a group of people. They didn't want the truth. One time, back in the Old Testament, oh Ahab, wickedest king Israel ever had. He's sitting around and the prophet during his time is Micaiah, who is my hero in the Bible. And they're talking around and they said, well, king, he's trying to get the answer he wants, like a lot of God's people. And he says, oh, king, but well, we've talked to all the prophets that are here, uh, all the prophets of Baal and your wife Jezebel and all her prophets. Did they not satisfy you? And he said, no, no, they didn't. He says, well, is there any other prophet that's around we haven't talked to yet? And he says, yeah, there's Micaiah, but I hate him. Why, king? Because he prophesied no good thing concerning me. You know what he wanted? He wanted what some of you want. He wanted to be told how nice he was. He wanted to be told how important he was. And he said, I hate Micaiah. My life verse on my preaching Bible, not this one, but the one I used to take when I used to do revivals and Bible conferences, I had it put right down there. 1 Kings twenty-two fourteen. 14. Micaiah statement. You know what he said? As the Lord liveth. What the Lord saith unto me, that will I speak. Amen. I don't care if it's negative or positive. I told you, I hate the time period I've lived in. I'm just like one of the prophets. Many preachers out there today, like one of the prophets. 
Hey, you know what? You got to preach the whole counsel of God. You preach the truth. And sometimes it'll be nice and sometimes it won't. Sometimes you'll need it. Good, good stuff. Sometimes you need to have your hide taken off. I didn't ask for the job. God called me to do it. He even made my blood type B negative. <laughs> you ever see the negativities of Christ in Matthew chapter 23? 39 verses, unsheeted negativity. I read that many times younger and I thought to myself, what happened to Jesus, lover of my soul? I sing my song to my kids when they get their nose bent out of joint and don't like something that I'm doing. I sing the song, does Jesus care? He didn't care here. Matthew 23, didn't care at all. Tore him to pieces. Do you know why he does that? You ever see him in Matthew chapter 15 when this sweet little dear woman comes up to him whose son, whose daughter is vexed with the devil and all she wants is her daughter restored. Ever see her just slam the door in her face three times? Last time he gets racial and calls her a, a, a racial name. Calls her a dog. I don't have to tell you what a female dog's called. I mean, he slammed the door in her face. Does Jesus care? Evidently not. You ever go to Jeremiah chapter 1 where he set Jeremiah down and he gave him his marching orders? He says, I've set you over nations, Jeremiah. You know what you're going to do? You're going to root out negative. You're going to pull down negative. You're going to destroy negative. You're going to throw down negative. Then you're going to build and plant. You know, there's some things in our lives that got to get rooted out, pulled down, destroyed, and thrown down before you can ever build anything. Yes. But we don't want that today. You don't ever learn anything from just getting all the positive. That's true. It'll pump you up. It'll puff you up. It'll bring you to the place where I'm not saying we all don't need it. But we learn from the negative things in life. The things we grow through. The learning current of life will be the negative things that we experience and deal with and grow through. Life is full of negative and positive. Why? When God made the whole universe and made the earth and that these chairs you're sitting on, the Bible you're holding, the clothes you're wearing, He made them out of atoms. Atoms are negative and positive. You can't even have life without negative and positive. But oh, we live in a Christianity. Oh, we all got to be positive today. Oh, it's such negative preaching. It needs to be. You know why? Because we're living in a day just like Jeremiah did. We're living in a Christianity, whether you like it or not, that has turned its back on God and the Word of God and has gone its own way instead of God's way and everybody's playing church just like they did back there. And God sent the prophets back there just like He sent the preachers today. Nobody wants to hear it. They didn't want to hear it then. The learning curve of life will be the negative things we experience when we're forced to deal with them and then grow through them. And when you get wisdom... And that wisdom translates through the negative things in our lives that we have to deal with. It's when we won't deal with them. It's when we won't recognize them. It's when we won't look at what we're struggling with. We have a tendency that we all have issues in our lives. And those issues potentially will keep you from ever being everything that God wants you to be. And you know what we'll do? Do you know what we do? Because they're negative, 
and we don't want to face the negativity in our lives, we'll work on the positive things. And we'll set the negative way over here. Let me tell you something. You want to grow in the Lord, you got to find out what's wrong with me, what's wrong with you, and then you got to go to work on it. And as you grow through it, you'll get wisdom, and that wisdom will translate an understanding, and you'll see the greatest aspect of the Christian life in anything that you're ever going to look at. When you keepeth understanding, when you make understanding your watchword, when you hold hold of her, when you do not let understanding out of your grasp, when you realize that God is and does everything for the reason he does it, the way he does it, because there's some good in it, and you can't see it all the time. You can't see it from a human standpoint. Hey, there's people in this, come into this church, that when you walked in here, somebody said, that person will never do anything, that person will never be worthless. You know what? When I look at you, you may have your issues, you may have your problems, but I'm going to tell you, and every one of you, I don't care what your social class is, I don't care how much money you got, I don't care how many drugs you've taken, I don't care if you're an alcoholic or were or are, I don't care where you're at in life. I'm telling you, if you're saved this morning, God saved you for a reason, and there's good in you. You may never realize it. You may never see it. You may never let anybody with a shovel and a pick or a backhoe dig the gold out of your life. But it's there. And when you have understanding, you realize that. And everything negative that you have to face in life, everything negative that we experience, when you have understanding and you hold on to it and you keep it, God shows you the good. God shows you the good. Because there's good in everything. It's just the fact that we don't see it from God's standpoint. Because we're going our way instead of God's way. When you go God's way, He'll show you through understanding. And boy, the greatest job you ever get in your life is once you get understanding, is to hold on to it. It's to keep it. Don't let anybody take it from you. Don't let anybody that's negative in life take from you what God has given you that's positive in life. Don't allow people to come into your world and, and complain about this and fret about this and murmur about this. You don't need those kind of people in your life. You don't need people who are going to tear down what God is doing when they haven't done anything themselves. It's like tomorrow, I, I heard it, you know, the Chiefs lost last week, because you all know that by now. And, and we'll never, we'll never, we'll, we'll never be, we'll never be a, a Super Bowl football team. I wish we would. I, I, I'm sorry. I don't think good. Uh, maybe, uh, don't be mad at me for saying that. I don't really know anything about football, but I'm just thinking, I don't think they will. I'm going to tell you my little puny reasoning on it. They're really a good football team, but they're not a great football team. I like Alex Smith as a wonderful character, a guy. I think he's got character. I think he's got quality. I think he's a man's man. I have a lot of respect for him. And I think he's a really good quarterback. But he's not a great quarterback. And I'm going to tell you something. What it takes, what it takes, it takes for you and for me to come to the point in our life where we realize that there's greatness in all of us and God wants to unearth it. And even though that we'll probably never win a Super Bowl, we'll probably never go to that place where everybody wears the ring, I want to tell you something. At the judgment seat of Christ, you need to win the crown that God has for you. There'll be some failures in this life you may not win any Super Bowls, but you win that crown. And after, you know, I went to the gym that next morning and, you know, everybody was talking about, every, every, everybody had their own game plan on how you should have won that game. <laughs> you should have heard. There were guys 
that were criticizing, and I never criticized them any. The first thing I said to you, and that's not a criticism. That's just my observation, my humble opinion. But there were guys over there that, that they never played football in their life. There was one guy there who was criticizing him. He hadn't seen his toes in 30 years. <laughs> it's easy to criticize. He would have a different story if he would have been playing out there that day. That he'd have tiptoed up to the to the center and snapped the ball and saw 900 pounds of brute force coming his way. The second play, he'd have probably lined up behind the left tackle because he was so disarrayed he missed the center. It's easy to criticize. Anybody can do that. And I'm going to tell you something else. When you criticize, when you become scornful, when you become an attitude against the things of God, you'll never see the good in what God's doing. That's the goal for all of us. No church is perfect. No Christian is perfect. No pastor is perfect. None of you are perfect. But I've done one thing, fair and honest with you, and I've made a lot of mistakes in the ministry. I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. But I'll tell you one mistake I've never made with people. And some of you older folks have been around me for a long time. You know this to be true. There never was a day in my life, ever, and the day I got saved and started working with people, that when I met somebody or God brought me somebody, the first thing I didn't do was look for the good in them. I can always find the bad. I want to see the good. Because I have the wisdom of God in a small thimble style form that I know that God saved you for a reason. Saved you for a purpose. He did not bring you to this church or any other church that you're going to just to leave you sit. He saw good in you. My job, as your job, is to not look at the negative things in people. Not look at the negative thing. Look at the good that's in there. That only comes from understanding. And you only get understanding once you get it. You keep it. You got to keep it. You got to hold on to it. There will be people that will try to snatch it from you. There will people come up and say, well, you know, I'm so fed up with this and that and that and that. And that will snatch it from you. There will people who say, well, I don't, don't agree with that. They'll snatch it from you. You have to be smarter than the problem because the greatest thing the devil wants to do, he knows he can never get your soul in hell. He knows that. But he also knows what he can do and what he will try to do. And unfortunately, in most cases, he will do. He'll take your understanding from you. Then you'll be like everybody else. You'll see the situation. Never figure the good in it. Say, how can you love that guy? How can you love that person? How can you love that girl? How can you love that couple? I mean, they got so many problems up one side and down the other. They got issues all over the place. You know, they're up and they're down. They're in and they're out. They just got all kinds of issues. How do you love somebody like that? Because you see them, and that's the way you and I were when God first saw me. And God looked down at Bob Alexander, and I was a mess. Still am. Just a saved mess now. He looked down at Bob Alexander and all of my sin and all of my ungodliness and all of my filthiness and all of my foolishness and all of my stupidity. He peeled all those layers back and somehow he says, I see something in him I want. I have the ability to look past his, his failures 
and to see the good. That's what we need to do. We need to look past. We all have our issues. You could list everybody else's issues over here that you don't like, and then if you're honest, you could go list your own, and you'd probably outweigh them. The key is, is just forget that. Don't even go down that road. Just look at the good. Just look at what God is doing with them. Look at God saved them. And get that understanding and hold on to it forever. Yes. And never let it go.